Second Samuel chapter six. Uh, you can find it uh, up here, or if you have a Bible, you can uh, turn there. It's after First uh, Samuel, and then um, if it's on your phone, you can find it there. Let me read it for us. We'll go up to verse fifteen. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, thirty thousand, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nasan, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah, to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. And so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Amen. All right. So good morning, everybody. Uh, we are on the verge of a new phase in this church. This is our first week in this place, back to 1030 in the morning, which seems pretty good. Um, we're also in a new phase in leadership. We just ordained a new deacon and a new elder. And contrary to what we might naturally think, it's actually when we are starting something that's the best time to form new habits. Like I mentioned before, while the cement is still wet, we should start patterns and ways of thinking about our church that are different than what we've done before. And so, unbeknownst to us, Sam and I, a couple months ago, started a series on the church. We did not know that we'd be moving so much, but it ended up being a very fortuitous thing because we are forced to ask ourselves, who are we or what is the church and what is our calling? Now, from a human perspective, or when we think about it functionally, we can look at this place as a place where people gather together, a place where people are inspired, a place where children learn good morals, a place where we sing and where we worship. But when we look in the Bible, we find that from God's perspective, the church is something more than that. In Psalm 22.3, which we read before, it says, God inhabits the praises of his people. As Sam shared with us a couple months ago from 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, or 2, verse 5, it says that we are living stones being built up into a spiritual house. And what that means is every time we gather together, 
We are constructing a house and God is dwelling in this place amongst our praises in a very special way. This, for the time that we're here, is God's house. God's presence is here. Now, today we're living in a world where the illusion of presence is all around us. We have FaceTime so we can spend time with people who are very far away. We have these unending group chats that go on and on and on and on. We get updates through uh, social media so we feel like we know where people are at. And people's presence seems to be all over the place. But on some level, we know that presence is more visceral than that. It's more physical than that. So let me tell you like a funny story in a sad setting. Uh, my dad passed away like 15 years ago. My brother, who has Down syndrome, had a hard time processing it. So I was like, okay, uh, Young, why don't we go visit Dad at the graveyard? And this is just after it happened. That the mound was still fresh. There was no gravestone up. So we pull up there, and my mom was coming behind us in her car. So we pull up there. We go to this uh, site, and then we go, I go, Young, um, is there anything you want to say to Dad? He's like, where is he? He's like, he's right there in the ground. He's like, oh, he is? I go, yes, yes, yes. So think of something you want to say. My mom pulls up five minutes later and says, what are you guys doing? And we're like, we're talking to dad. And she's like, that's not dad. Dad's over there, 20 feet away. And we're like, oh. And my brother's like, Fred, what are you doing? I was about to like pour out my heart to this other guy. But we know, like, even though in my brain I know like his soul is not there, it's somewhere else. When you're in that place, you're kind of aware of it in a different way. Makes sense, right? So the same way with the church. We know God is omnipresent. We know God is everywhere. But when we're in this place, He is here in a special and a powerful way. And so in this passage, just like our church, David is on the verge of something new. He's about to start his new capital. He's about to do something powerful. And he's inviting God's presence into his city in a special and powerful way. But what we see in this passage is he makes a major mistake. And when we think about the church, not just as a place where we do things, but God dwells, And when we think about this passage, we learn that there's a very important mistake that we have to avoid, and we get some little bit of guidance on what God wants our church to do in this phase and in this season of our life. So with that, let's pray, and then we'll look at this passage. God, we thank you so much for giving us this time, and we thank you that you have always watched after this church. When we got notice that the two places ago place that we had to move within a couple of days we had a new place to meet we were able to meet there and then we were able to find another place and you always provide for us and at all of these moments it would be a natural place for people in the church to go this is too hard there's too much stuff going on it's not stable but you have been faithful to the people here you have been faithful to us and you'll continue to provide for us what we pray is as we meet in this space whether it's for a couple months or for a couple years that you would fill this place with the power of your Holy Spirit, that this place will become a place of healing, a place of restoration, a place filled with hope, and a place where people who do not know you and are far from you and are experiencing darkness will come and find light. God, pour out your blessing on this place. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I mentioned how the church is the place where God dwells now, but in the Old Testament, that place was the Ark of of the covenant. That was the very specific point, the location within the earth where God's presence dwelled in a powerful way. And it was created by Moses under the guidance of God. And on the inside was the law, a part of Aaron's staff that had budded, and manna, 
as a reminder that God will always provide in miraculous ways. But on the top were two cherubim, or angels, whose wings were facing each other, and that was called the mercy seat. And if you look at other ancient examples of these types of mercy seats, there is one important piece that was missing from the ark, and that was a statue. Mercy seats usually had a statue on top, but when God gave the instructions for his ark, he said, no statue should be placed upon it. Yes, I will be at this spot in a very particular way, but you cannot move me around or manipulate me or look at me like I'm a piece of wood or a piece of stone. I am free. I am the one who is leading this nation and not somebody else. So this ark was created, and when Israel was in sync with God, the ark could serve as a place of guidance. It would lead them all over the desert, and it would go before them. It also led them into battle. But over time, Israel started to drift away from God, and they did not treat the ark as a place where God's presence was in a powerful way. They treated it like a good luck charm or a superstitious thing that they could use to their advantage. So in uh, 1 Samuel 4, the priests had started robbing the people and their offerings. The military was out of sync with God's guidance, and they were losing to the Philistines. And they said, you know what? Why don't we grab the ark from Shiloh, and we'll take it with us into battle, and God will have to be for us because he is always with this thing. But because they were out of sync with God, God allowed the ark to be captured by the Philistines, and this was one of the ultimate low points in Israelite history. A child was born, and the child's name was called Ichabod at that time, which means God's glory has departed from Israel. Over time, it eventually made its way back to Kiriath-Jearim, which in this passage is called Baal Judah, and it stayed there for 50 to 70 years, waiting for somebody who was worthy to be able to bring it back. And this worthy person, like Arthur and the sword or Thor and Mjolnir, was David. David finally arose, and he was worthy to bring the ark out of this place. And what we know about David is he was a man after God's own heart. And what this meant practically was any time David had to make a decision, he would ask God, God, what is it that you want me to do? From the smallest decisions to the biggest ones, even in military tactics, he would ask God, God, how do you want me to fight this battle? And in the previous chapter, God told them, don't face them head on, but circle around the back. And when you hear the sound of marching in the poplar trees, then you should attack. And he did. God was, uh, David was a man after God's own heart, and he is on the verge of something new. His life keeps getting better and better and better. He had just defeated the Philistines in two major battles. He had quelled the civil war between the descendants of Saul and the tribe of Judah. He had united the kingdom and been made king by all the tribes. And he had just captured this new city, Zion and Jerusalem. And he was ready now to be the man that God had called him to be. David seems to be the right person. And this seems to be the right time. But when he tries to bring the ark into his city, a tragedy happened. Uzzah, who is in front of the ark, reaches out because the oxen had stumbled and tries to steady it. He touches it with his hand. God is angry with him, and Uzzah dies on the spot. And when David sees that this happened, first it says he's angry, and then he becomes afraid. And so that makes us ask the question, why did this happen? Why is it that even though David is the right man, and this seems like the right time, that this tragedy happened? On a quick read, this seems way too harsh, and it doesn't make any sense. How could this small act caused such a great tragedy when everything else seemed to be going so right. And here we encounter the mistake that we make when we forget that God is present in our midst. 
David had assumed that God would always be on his side. And he, a man after God's own heart, who always asked God, God, what is it that what you wanted me to do? At this very moment when he should have been asking, God, how can I make your presence come into my city? Failed to ask. From Deuteronomy chapter 17, we know that the king's primary duty is not military, it's not political, it's not building cities. It is to know God's law and to live out God's law. And David, because he's on such a hot streak, assumes that he knows exactly what he needs to do, and he fails to ask God, God, how do you want me to bring this ark into your city? Instead, he just assumes that the things that he's going to do, the decisions he makes, are going to be right. And so what is the analogy of this? Imagine um, you're in a relationship or you're married. One of you gets a promotion or you finish your PhD or whatever, and then you go to your spouse, thank you so much for supporting me. You have been by my side through thick and thin. I am going to take you out for an entire day of celebrating. And as a spouse, you're like, finally. They recognize all the sacrifices I made. So the day arrives, and then they go, okay, so what are we going to do? Well, you're in luck. The Sixers are in town today. So we're going to go to the Sixers game. And then you go, okay, I mean, I don't really like basketball, but I, I understand. And then you go, okay, but what about dinner? Well, we're going to go get steak. And then you're like, but I'm a vegetarian. And then you go, well, yeah, 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 but they have sides. Don't worry about it. Uh, okay, and then after that, well, we're going to have a party. Oh, great. But uh, none of your friends are invited. Only my friends are invited. And while you're at this party, one of my uh, whatever friends just kind of bumps into the wife. And at that point, it's like, all right, that's the last straw. And this is exactly what happened in this particular scenario. The ark, if you look at what it's supposed to be done, is not supposed to be on a cart. It has to be carried by hand on shoulders. It's not supposed to be exposed so anybody can touch it. It's supposed to be covered up by the tent. David ended up inviting 30,000 political and military leaders, but he did not invite the most important people. The only people who were allowed to touch the ark were the Levites. And so instead of doing what God wanted in this very particular instance, David just assumed, I'll just wing it, and whatever happens will happen. And eventually, when Uzzah touches the ark, that is the last straw for God. And he says, David, I love you, I am for you, but if you don't put me first, this is what is going to happen. Do not treat me like this. I am not something you can manipulate, something you can treat as a lucky charm, some afterthought that you tack onto your life once you get all the successes that you want. I come first. Ask me first, what is it that you desire? Prioritize him first. And as individuals, this is, I think, an easy mistake for us to make. We get so busy that we end up becoming overwhelmed. We look around us instead of looking up, and we take our cues from where we're supposed to be from the people around us. We start chasing after all these other goals, at some point, we realize we need God on our side, and we lift up a quick prayer, God, bless my family, bless the things that I'm doing. But we never took time to pause and be still long enough to say, God, what do you want for my life? We just assume that because he loves us so much, he's going to bless us and bless us and bless us, and blessing will follow all the decisions that we make. But something as important as God's presence, but something as important as being the church, we have to pause and ask God, what is it that you want us to do? It's very interesting, by this point in the story, for all intents and purposes, David is the king. Everybody has agreed that he should be the king, but the only time this passage refers 
to David as a king is in verse 12. And it's after he asks the question, how can the ark of God come to me? This passage should have started with that question. God, I'm unworthy. You have blessed me. You have watched over me. How is it that you want me to honor your presence? But David doesn't even think to ask until after this horrible tragedy happens. If we fast forward to our own time, we know that God wanted to be with his people so much that he transformed and is no longer present in the ark, but he made his presence available in the person of Jesus Christ. And instead of being um, struck down when you touch him, you are healed. Instead of being struck and striking out against God's people or people who have not taken uh, the right view towards the ark, God himself allows his son to be struck and allows blessing and forgiveness to flow from it. Instead of judgment, we get grace. And I think because we're used to an avenue of grace, we kind of take God's presence for granted. We come to this place without thinking, God, what do you want for my life? But this passage is a reminder. We have to put God first. And when we do that, and we look at the rest of this passage, we find something very important. What is it that God wants our church to do in this new phase? In verses 8 and 9, we find that David is angry and he's afraid and he decides, I cannot bring the ark into Jerusalem. And instead, he takes it to a place, the house of Obed-Edom, who is a Gittite. And to be a Gittite means you're from the town of Gath. And Gath is 30 miles west of where Jerusalem is. He takes it all the way out into this other town. And the interesting thing about Gath is it is not an Israelite city, but a Philistine city. And while it is there for three months, God ends up blessing that town, which is outside the scope of David's kingdom. There's a lot of different examples of this, but since a lot of us are from uh, Philadelphia or Kaiser Philly, I'll use a Philly example. 2013, there was a plane that was going from Beijing to Macau, and it was stuck on the tarmac for three hours. On this plane were four members of the Philadelphia Orchestra. And so as they were sitting there, they decided, you know what, I'm going to put on a concert. So they took out their violins and they played, I don't know what this is, so I'll just read it for you, String Quartet Number 12 in F Major called the American Quartet by Antonin Dvorak. So they put on this tiny concert in this plane and the people who were originally angry and impatient turned delighted and joyful. So what is the point of this story? We are in this place, maybe for 30 minutes, maybe for three months, maybe for three years, but God's heart is to bless the people outside of this room. We are in this place, and the cement is still wet, but one of the habits I want us to start using and having in our church life is not just to think about our own lives, our own families, our own church, but how is it that God wants us to bless the people outside of these walls? It's important because we have this tendency to think that we have to get our lives together first. But before David even figures out how to bring the ark, God is already blessing people outside of the kingdom. To take an analogy of a pebble in a pond, the ripples come even before the stone hits the water. God wants to bless these people, and it would be a shame if we ended up meeting here for years and years and years, and we never gave a thought to the people around So my encouragement for us today is let's, as we're new to this place, think about how God wants to bless the people outside. With that, let's pray. Um, And then uh, I'll invite the worship team forward.
So before we pray for our church, before we pray for our families, before we pray for ourselves, let's take a moment and pray for this neighborhood. We're in the East Village, we're on 2nd and 2nd. About 60,000 people here. It skews young, 20s and 30s, mostly um, married or uh, together without kids. Uh, right next to us, there's a, a cemetery called the Marble Cemetery across the street. Uh, there's an Eastern Orthodox Church that's supporting Ukraine. A couple blocks to the west is the Bauer Mission. Um, throughout this place, God wants us to do something, not just use this place as a place of convenience, but to be a channel of his blessing. Um, maybe we'll organize something, maybe we won't, but my suggestion or my hope is, as we come to this neighborhood, let's spend time praying for it, praying for the people that you see, looking at the building, seeing how it is that God wants us to bless this place. And as you do that, maybe he'll put something on your heart. This is the time to share it and say, oh, I think we should try this, I think we should do this. So let's take a moment before we do anything else, pray for this neighborhood, pray that God would bless this neighborhood, and then we'll sing some songs together.